The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. Hello, everyone, and greetings from Dublin. My name is Eve Patton, and I'm the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub for Arts and Humanities Research. I'm delighted to join you all uh, for this very special event, Fields of Vision, Seamus Heaney and Society. Normally, at this time of year, the doors of the Trinity Long Room Hub would be opening for our Dublin audience. Uh, instead, we're opening online to the world, and I know that we're welcoming a very full international audience uh, on Zoom, on our Facebook live stream, and hello also to our uh, transatlantic friends who are joining us through Irish Central, with whom we're very pleased to be partnering again for this event. Now, those of you joining us for the first time may be wondering what it is that the Trinity Long Room Hub does. So let me briefly explain that we are the center point for the world-leading research that's carried out in the arts and humanities at Trinity in Dublin. Uh, the Trinity Long Room Hub is really the community that brings together young scholars, early career researchers, right the way through to senior visiting fellows and numerous national and international partners and collaborators to advance all kinds of innovative and interdisciplinary work. It could be in literature, in language, in history and philosophy, uh, in the classics, in the creative arts, and also to ask how our research can address and benefit the society in which we live. Uh, it's been a real honor for me to have taken over as director from my predecessor, Jane Allmeyer, in what is the Hub's 10th anniversary year. Uh, and just between ourselves, it's a little bit daunting to have taken over right in the middle of a, a global pandemic, but I know we'll all get through it and rise to the challenge. Now, today's event takes place in the week of another anniversary, uh, that of the poet Seamus Heaney's death in uh, late August of, of 2013. Uh, and so before we begin, uh, the event, I want to send our warmest wishes to Mary Heaney and to members of the Heaney family and also the Heaney estate who I know are joining us for the event. We're also joined by two Heaney experts who are going to lead the conversation today. So let me introduce you to them. Dr. Rosie Lavin is from the School of English in Trinity and she's already recognized as a leading scholar of contemporary Irish literature. Rosie is the author of a new book, Seamus Heaney and Society, which is published by Oxford University Press. And we're so proud to be launching this book right now as I speak. Uh, you're going to hear a little bit more about it shortly. Many congratulations to Rosie and also to Oxford University Press on, on a really beautiful production. And I should add that Rosie is also working with Professor Bernard O'Donoghue on a new Faber edition of the poems of Seamus Heaney. Uh, so we look forward very much to that. Now, Rosie will be in conversation with Professor Chris Morash, also from the School of English, renowned, of course, for his many books on Irish theater, media, 
and literary history. Chris has just finished a new book on Yeats and theatre. Uh, and Chris is also the holder of Trinity's Seamus Heaney Professorship of Irish Writing. Now this post was established at Trinity in 2012, largely thanks to the vision of our very generous supporter, Sir Mark Piggott, who was, I know, hoping to listen in today, and so we send him our warmest greetings. And finally, we are thrilled to welcome, for what I think is the first time to the Trinity Long Room Hub, the distinguished actor, director, and writer, Adrian Dunbar, who's going to read some of Heaney's words for us. Uh, I know that many of you know Adrian from his work on the large and small screen, um, but over the past few years, of course, we've seen his very valuable contribution to Irish theatre in his uh, superb stage productions of Samuel Beckett and Brian Friel, among others. And of course, he's also a long-term champion of Seamus Heaney's writing. Adrian, you are very welcome to Trinity. Before I hand over, let me ask the tweeters amongst you, please, to tweet. You can tag at TLRHub and use the hashtag HubMatters. Uh, if you keep an eye on the chat stream at the bottom of your screens, we'll post this information and a few other details related to the event for you as we go along. But for now, everyone, please sit back, relax, and enjoy listening to Fields of Vision, Seamus Heaney and Society. And to start the conversation, I'm going to hand over to Chris Morash. Chris. Great, thanks very much, Eve. Um, yeah, well, welcome everybody again, to reiterate what Eve has said, to welcome everybody to the, to the, the podcast here this evening. Um, particular welcome to, to Mary and the Heaney family. It's, it's great to, to know you're, you're watching. Uh, what we're going to do this evening is we're going to look at some images that Rosie has curated relating to Heaney's life, taking us right through from the early 60s, right up until, until, until shortly before he died. Um, and then we're going to, at the same time, we're going to hear some of his, some of his work. Adrian is going to read passages from the poems, passages from some of the, uh, the, the prose works from a lecture. And then Rosie and I are going to have conversations around this to try to put a little bit of shape on it. So uh, without any further ado, let's, let's, let's get into some, some images and some, uh, some, some of the words. Uh, the first image we're looking at here is, is one from Norman Parkinson. It's a, it's a picture from 1965 of a very happy young Seamus Heaney um, surrounded by school children. And I think we'll take that as our cue for our first reading. Um, and Adrian's going to read from us an extract from a work. Um, it's from his 19, Heaney's 1983 lecture called Among School Children. Adrian. Hello. Hey. Hello. Can everybody hear me? You're there. Yeah, we can hear you loud and clear. All right. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Good evening. Hi, Mari. Hi, Catherine. Hi, everybody. <clears throat> okay, reading one from Among School Children. I was studying English, reading Shakespeare and Oscar Wilde and Chaucer and Dickens, considering the rhythms of the authorized version of the Bible and their effect on English prose, considering the tradition of courtly love, learning to find my way among the ironies and niceties of Jane Austen's vicarages, 
discussing Tennyson's loss of faith and Lawrence's phallic consciousness, learning of the rituals of club life in India by reading E.M. Foster, and learning the rituals of the sherry party by attending receptions at the house of our Oxford professor, a man who was alleged to have confessed that he was the first of his family to have gone into trade. Meanwhile, at the weekends and during the holidays, far from the sherry parties of Malone Road, the secretary of the local Pioneer Total Abstinence Association was enrolling me as a probationer in the society. Far from the elegances of Oscar Wilde and the profundities of Shakespeare, I was acting with the Balahi Dramatic Society in plays about 1798, now playing a United Irishman, a blacksmith forging pikes on a rail anvil fetched from Devlin's forge at Hill Head, now playing Robert Emmett in a one-act melodrama and having my performance scaled in the crowded columns of the Mid-Ulster Mail. Far from discussing Victorian loss of faith, I was driving my mother to evening devotions in the chapel or looking for my name in a list of adorers at the exposition of the Blessed Sacrament. Far from the melodies of portly love, I was acting as far in tea at the GAA Cayley, crying Balai Lumni or Cor Thesher Jarn, and trying to master a way of coaxing a training college student into the back seat of our Austin 16. And far, far from Lawrence's phallic candor, finding myself subsequently confessing sins of immodest and immoderate embraces. Was I two persons or one? Was I extending myself or breaking myself apart? Was I being led out or led away? Thanks, thanks very much, Adrian. That's great. I think that really starts us off well. Um, Rosie, I want, to, I want to pick up um, from something that you, you, you say at the very beginning of your book, and I'm going to hold it up here for shamelessly plug it for everybody. Um, and as you can see from the post-its along the top of my copy, I've hardly touched it. Um, at, the, at the very beginning, you, you quote something extraordinary that Seamus Heaney said in an interview with um, BBC um, in 1966, actually the year after this photograph was taken. He said, I was lucky in that I lived in a society that has com now completely disappeared. Even I, at the age of 27, can say that I have seen a society changing completely within the first 15 years of my life, really. I think it's a remarkable thing to say, you know, for him to say, I was lucky to have lived in a society that completely disappeared. Mm -hmm. And just in that passage that Adrian read there, you really get that sense, don't we, of, of him living in kind of two worlds and being very conscious of one of those um, disappearing. How, how do you... Um, how do you how do you read that in terms of, of, of how we read his subsequent work? Well, um, thank you, Chris, for that question, and thank you everyone for joining us too. And um, I think that's true. It is an extraordinary passage, and an ex it's an extraordinary passage for a writer as young and emerging, if you like, as Heaney was at that stage, to have to have kind of set down in this radio interview in 1966, just a few months after his first book was published. Uh, and lucky is a strange word, and it's not the first time that he uses that word strangely. Um, I think. It goes exactly as you said, what it goes to the heart of is a kind of self-consciousness and a growing self-consciousness of himself as a writer. 
and understanding that part of being a writer is actually stepping outside um, the world or the worlds that you belong to in order to observe them and in order to set them down. Um, talking about a society that has disappeared completely well we know in a sense we can kind of gloss that by by saying that he's thinking about his rural background he's thinking about the way that rural life is changing you know in, in the span of his lifetime at that stage you know between 1939 and the mid-1960s but it's interesting also that he's thinking about what's perhaps disappeared because he's moved away from it. You know, we know from digging perhaps his, his most famous poem, his first book in his first collection, he's already very kind of conscious of the fact that choosing to be a writer, that following that path um, is going to pull him away from, from that society. Um, I think it's also important to say that that kind of sense of, of loss or exile, actually, and exile is his word, it's not too strong a word for that sense that he felt of moving away from his uh, from his origins um, is intimately connected with his experience of education and with going away to school and he later said that going to boarding school at the age of 12 kind of put a hermetic seal on the first 12 years of his life in that in that rural background and the very tight and special and close family life in in South County Derry. Yeah no I, and I think I mean and you develop that really well I think in the book the sense of from a very early stage in, in his career as a poet, having this sense of living two lives and of negotiating between more than one worlds. Um, and, and at the same time, you, you quote something I think that's really useful from, from Seamus Dean, his, of course, his, 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 his contemporary and um, both with St. Columbus, uh, where Dean talks about education in the 1960s in Northern Ireland at that time, as in this Dean's words, he says, it now carried a political implication, yeah. a sense of promise. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, I think you, know, you, you, you capture that very well in the book as well, this sense that for Heaney's he part of a generation that saw education as, as, as something that opened up new possibilities, perhaps came with a cost, but opened up new possibilities. Um, yeah. How do we see that? How does that filter into his work? Well, I think um, it fills into his work through that sense of compromise, through that sense of, 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 a kind of, of a kind of divided responsibility in some respects, that exactly as you say, he belongs to that generation who, who are entering education in the post-war period. And because he's in Northern Ireland and under the British jurisdiction, he's entering education at a time when social policy is broadening and, and, and minds are broadening, I suppose, as far as social policy is, is concerned. So he passes the 11 plus, he goes to university uh, on a university scholarship. Um, so he has a sense of that. Education, as Dean is very is very much kind of reminding us, is politicised um, in in the northern context. You know, by the time you get to the nineteen sixties, and people of Heaney and Dean's generation are graduating and thinking with many other people about civil rights and the kind of situation um, in, in the north and and their own futures and perhaps their own um, their own kind of sense of, of the world that they want to live in. Um, and but I think this so. I, I suppose this is not the only, you know, in a sense, we understand these things as having had a personal impact on, on Heaney. And we understand that too, because he, he spent really all his life in education, as well as spending all his life in poetry, you know, as a teacher, as a university lecture, lecturer, as somebody who taught and trained teachers. Uh, but we can also understand these, these issues in a generational sense. Um, and that's why I think that's one of the many reasons why I think this photograph, which is so immediately charming and, and charismatic, um, is so is so expressive um, because 
in a strange way, um, this is a photograph that's very much kind of expressing a lot about class and origins and that particular kind of post-war moment, I think, um, a sense of, uh, a sense of, potential a sense of um a sense of kind of, of of a world that's opening up um for um for people because of the kinds of opportunities because of the way the world's changing i guess and i think we get that very strongly mm. um very strongly in this image mm. and and there's also this huge sense of joy there there's just that incredible yeah. room that's right we're going to go from this i think you're going to bring us to another image which is if you like the polar opposite of that yeah absolutely absolutely so this is our second image uh, a painting a very famous painting by francisco goya um, the third of may 1808 and we're going to accompany this um with our next reading from adrian dunbar uh, which is heaney's poem um summer Can you hear me? Okay. I'm sorry, but my, my phone's playing out. Okay, this is summer, 1969. While the constabulary covered the mob firing into the falls, I was suffering only the bullying son of Madrid. Each afternoon in the casserole heat of the flat, as I sweated my way through the life of Joyce, stinks from the fish market rose like the reek of a flax dam. At night on the balcony, ghouls of wine, a sense of children in their dark corners, old women in black shawls near open windows, the air, a canyon rivering in Spanish. We talked our way home over starlit plains, where patent leather of the Guardia Seville gleamed like fish bellies in the flax-poisoned waters. Go back, one said, trying to touch the people. Another conjured Lorca from his hill. We sat through death counts and bullfight reports on the television. Celebrities arrived from where the real thing still happened. I retreated to the cool of the Prado. Goya's shootings of the 3rd of May covered a wall, the thrown up arms and spasm of the rebel, the helmeted and knapsacked military, the efficient rake of the fusillade. In the next room, his nightmares, grafted to the palace wall, dark cyclones hosting, breaking, Saturn, jeweled in the blood of his own children, gigantic chaos turning his brute hips over the world. Also, that home gang where two berserks club each other to death for honor's sake, grieved in a bog and sinking. He painted with his fists and elbows, flourished the stained cape of his heart as history charged. Thanks very much, Adrian. I never quite realized how that word home gang works until I heard you read that there. So that's thanks for that. Um, I, I think we, we, we could pick up something here. I think we were, we were talking about a few minutes ago, Rosie, which is this idea of being, of Heaney having a sense of being two persons. 
and there there being a sense in which this is something that perhaps was was say won't say forced upon but for that developed out of his experience of education by the time we get up to a poem like this which of course i mean is from from north uh you know the collection from the mid 70s there's really almost a sense of being two persons is almost a, a kind of defensive posture as well yeah. um uh, do you want to maybe say a few words about that in relation to the poem? Yeah, well, I think I think the poem is um, exactly as you say. I think it's allowing us to follow on this idea of being two persons, and also perhaps mm. this sense of compromise and responsibility and obligation, and the kinds of tensions around these issues, which which actually for Heaney, you know, become creative challenges and preoccupations, but they also lead to some extraordinary poetry and reflections on poetry. Um, in the poem, which we just heard read so brilliantly, um, we have Heaney remembering time that he spent um, with his family in Madrid, uh, spent because, you know, he was able to travel through France to Spain at that time because he'd won a literary award, which, um, which uh, you know, encouraged required foreign travel. Um, but what we hear actually, as well as, you know, an extraordinary sense of this brooding violence, as well as a sense of um, reflecting on the, on the power and the eloquence of Goya's very troubling images, iconic images of violence. Uh, we also hear a very strong self-critique um, because Heaney is referring not only to the pictures that he's encountering in Madrid, he's referring to the pictures that he sees on the television screen. Um, and that kind of sense of, of culpability, um, he's there in Madrid sort of extending his artistic sensibility, reading Richard Elman's monumental biography of James Joyce, at suffering only the bullying son of Madrid, while people in Belfast, a place that he knows very well, are confronting this seismic and, and very troubling um, uh, period of violence, you know, at the, at the outset of the troubles. So I think that kind of sense of culpability and that, that very ready uh, willingness to put himself, um, to test himself and to test his sort of artistic impulses and convictions um, is, is very strong. And it's part of that um, two persons division. Um, and it's something that stays with him throughout his career, really. And I think, I mean, it's probably worth remembering as well that that, that poem is, is part of that longer sequence in North Singing School. Yeah. And yeah. the next poem, but one is, is, you know, is one that's probably most often quoted in relation to Heaney and, 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 and his position at that time in the 70s in relation to the North, yeah. the poem Exposure. Yeah. With those famous lines, you know, I'm neither internee nor informer, an inner emigre grown long-haired and thoughtful, yeah. a wood current escaped from the massacre. Yeah. That, that's, you know, that's placed fuges beyond the poem we've heard yeah and i suppose i mean i was sort of you know asking myself okay how do we how do we square these two things that 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 sense that you have in this poem of being you know away from the fray yeah. and yet that that sense of exposure of somehow engaging with it and there's something there's something you use in in the book which i i found absolutely fascinating um it's it's something from john berger um <laughs> Which, which you say, you know, has has had a bearing on the way we read this particular poem of Heaney's about the Goya painting. And I'll just read it, and then maybe if you comment on it, um, this is Berger. He says he talks about the effect of closing the distance in time between the painting of the picture and one's own act of looking at it. Mm. In this special sense, all paintings are contemporary; hence, yeah. the immediacy of their testimony. Their historical moment is literally there for our eyes. Yeah. I, I just thought that was a great passage. Uh, are you suggesting perhaps that that's what's going on in, in, in the poem that we've just heard here in relation to this image? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, th I think what's also going on is that Heaney's thinking about the process of making art, making images, making poems. I mean, he's thinking about Goya and the, and the physical gestures that, that, that kind of created this extraordinary picture, the 3rd of May. Mm -hmm. John Berger, in, in, in that kind of, in that passage or in, in the section from, from ways of seeing that that comes from, is also thinking mm -hmm. about that. He says there's something remarkable uh, about, the, about the encounter with the work of art, because you can stand where the painter stood. Um, the, the lines of paint on the, on the canvas reflect gestures that the painter actually made. Um, and Heaney is thinking at a time when he's, you know, coming under pressure um, in some quarters um, to be a spokesman, to comment on the violence, to make art out of the violence. He's thinking that he wants to resist that, but on the other hand, he's thinking that he has an obligation somehow to confront it, which is why, you know, we get the reference also to Lorca in that poem. So he's looking for exemplars of, of writers who've managed to negotiate the demand to confront violence and somehow um, and somehow make something lasting and enduring in art out of it. Um, but he's aware that it's, but he's aware that again, it's compromising for all sorts of reasons. Um, and he's also, I think, fascinated again by this act of observing and whether you're observing something directly or, or indirectly. Goya didn't, for example, witness the scene that we see in the 3rd of May directly, but he makes an extraordinary and, and truly iconic image out of it. And so I think Heaney is thinking always about, about you know, what's not shown on the canvas, which is, you know, which are, I suppose, the actions of the painter who, who, who creates the image for us. And I think it's probably worth reminding ourselves as well, I mean, that, uh, that collection North appears at a really fraught time. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the, the mm -hmm. kinds of pressures that Heaney was feeling, I mean, not just Heaney, but other artists as well at the time, yeah. to engage with the violence, to, to speak on behalf of the violence, yeah. or not on behalf of the violence, but to speak about the violence. Um, is you, you know is, is something we've we, we've we've kind of moved away from in a sense, and I, I, I it put extraordinary pressure on him as an artist. Yeah. And I, I think one of the remarkable things is how he comes through that, yeah. how he comes out of that, yeah. um, and then in the work really from about the mid nineteen eighties onwards, we start to see a very different sort of tone enter the, the work yeah. uh, an ability to kind of move beyond it and i think i mean the, the next image i think you have for us is yeah. one that very much moves us beyond the kind of if you like the, that that very fraught period into yeah. something which is utterly different yeah absolutely um so our, our next image this the third image that we're going to look at is is a painting by gustav kaibot uh called banks of a canal near naples from around 1872 and the third poem that adrian is going to read for us is also called banks of a canal um uh, by by seamus heaney so we'll hear that now banks of a canal Say canal, and there's that final vowel, towing silence with it, slowing time to a walking pace, a path, a whitewashed gleam of dwellings at the skyline. World stands still, the stunted concrete mocks the classical. Water says, my place here is in dream, in quiet good standing, like a sleeping stream, come rain or sullen shine, I'm peaceable. Stretched to the horizon, placid ploughland, the sky not truly bright or overcast. I know that clay, 
the damp and dirt of it, the coolth along the bank, the grassy zest on verges, the path not narrow, but still straight, where soul could mind itself or stray beyond. Thanks again, Adrian. That was great. Um, just before we talk about the poem itself, Rosie, do you want to just tell us about this? This, this is a very late poem, is that right? Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's a very late poem. Um, and it was published actually in, in 2014 in a book called Lines of Vision, um, uh, published by the National Gallery of Ireland. Um, the National Gallery invited Irish writers to respond to works of art in the gallery's collection. And so, and, and this, is, this is the painting that Healy chose. Um, and so the poem is a direct response to that. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 actually a posthumous poem in a sense. Yeah. It's yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, if, if we're kind of looking at the tra trajectory of a career here, from you know the, the sort of the early finding its way in 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 the sixties to that sort of fraught period in the seventies, this this is this is the Heaney who has come into the into the calm water at the end of it. Yeah, um, it was extraordinary kind of hearing that poem, particularly I think in in, in the current moment. Um, and, and that that extraordinary line at the beginning of the uh, slowing time yeah you know i think i think in some ways we've all experienced a kind of slowing of time over the past six months yeah um what 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 is heaney doing here with the poem in relation to the image because as you say this was originally written to be uh, to connect with the painting in the national gallery as as part of a wider exhibition so people would be in the gallery they would see the painting and the poem would be beside it. So the two, the visual and the, the, the poem are meant to interact here, aren't they? Yeah. So, so maybe want to say a bit about slowing time. Extraordinary idea. It is an extraordinary idea. Um, but I think the more, well, the more I think about it at least, the more I think that what Heaney's doing when he talks about slowing time and when he describes this picture, um, the, the more it seems to me that he's doing something he did all the way through his career. It's just that this idea of slowing time um, in his later work, and certainly, as you were saying, in his work from, from, from the late 1980s um, uh, towards the end of his life, uh, takes on a new kind of resonance and, and poignancy. I think slowing time for Heaney really means um, going back. It means uh, recollection. It means um, a return to his, um, to his origins, to, to the sense of self which, which comes from his origins. And that's why I think one of the most striking lines in this, um, in this poem is where, is where he says, you know, that he knows this place, that he knows the damp and the dirt of it. Because knowledge, of course, is a kind of possession. And this is a poem about recognition, that there's something in this image that he can respond to, that he recognizes from his own, um, from his own world, from his own, um, from his own past, his, his childhood. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's incredibly powerful. So it becomes, even though, you know, again, a kind of almost the direct opposite from, from, from the Goya. This is a, a depopulated um, image. He, he, he discerns and understands the kind of lives that go on in a landscape like this. He talks about the dwelling places that you can just about see um, on the horizon in this picture. He, he understands, you know, the kind of relationship with land that, that this, this landscape involves. Um, so it's an intensely and strongly personal poem, um, which is, I think, you know, slowing time because it's, it's, it's seeking to return and recapture uh, a time that he knew very well. And, and there's also a, perhaps a sense that he's, you, you talk about him here, you know, going back to my place. Yeah. Uh, that that is, that that's there through, through the image and, and, and through, and through the, the, the nature of the place that's evoked. Yeah. But also in the language, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, that, I mean, you can, you can hear, almost hear his voice in this, can't you? Absolutely. In, in, in lines like, you know, quiet, good standing. Yeah. Or I'm peaceable. 
exactly there, there, there's just that 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 ability to use language that sounds just sounds so conversational exactly so yeah i mean do, do you want to maybe say a bit about that in terms of how he how he uses that kind of that very very personal kind of vocabulary in the late work yeah well i think um again i think it's i think it's consistent i suppose i think it's something that he does all the way through um but i think in 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 the later work it's um language is kind of taking on something extra um, if you like something unforeseen um, to, to borrow a heaney um mm. a, a heaney phrase uh, because he's becoming more aware i think of of mortality because he's thinking about uh faith actually and 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 the vestiges of you know of, of a catholic um uh framework from his childhood but that what, mm. what happens later on in his life um but i think there's something um as you say that the kind of conversational nature the ease and the and the um and I guess the, the the candor and the genuineness of the language here, um, which also has to do with that that sense of recognition, um, that sense of, of of kind of identification, um, and I think there's something quite um, there's something quite important again about this being a poem where you know he is present. I know um, this place. He's telling us mm. that, um, but at the same time, there's something. Um, Bohini, I think, importantly and kind of beguilingly anonymous about this. And it, it links for me, it makes me think of, of, of an earlier poem, The Seed Cutters, where he's also in dialogue with um, with a painter. He's thinking about Bruegel. The Seed Cutters is a, is a much loved poem from, from North as well, uh, where he talks about the calendar customs of his, of his rural upbringing um, and the anonymities, the kind of sacred anonymities, if you like, of the people um, who worked um, those landscapes those places um so um yeah i think i think all of that's here as well mm. and in some ways it, you know it brings us back to that that opening idea of, of of kind of living you know being two persons as well yeah that you know you talk about as he, as he was became older that originary world gets kind of further away but it's yeah. there in, in kind of language traces and it's it there is. in vocabulary it's there in phrases like quiet good standing or Absolutely. peaceable yeah cool. Isn't yeah cool's a great word it is uh, I mean, listeners can't see the text of the poem but that line the cool along the bank c-o-o-l-t-h i mean yeah. it's, it's uh, exactly there there's the trace of the earlier person there in the language absolutely and I, I think that's also there in an imaginative sense as well um because i mean not long before this poem was um was was written uh, there was a brilliant documentary made by rte to mark Heaney's 70th birthday out of the marvelous mm. and there's a very striking line in that where he's he's being filmed in his home in dublin and he says he's thinking about the idea of home and he says i dwell here i dwell in this house i dwell in this city but Heaney um lives in the country and lives in his memory and lives elsewhere so there is again mm. that sense of of division but it's it's in a sense it's a vital and like sustaining and, and creatively um generative um uh, division yeah and at the same time, the later poetry becomes, I almost hesitate to say it, but it all becomes more philosophical in a sense, yeah, doesn't it? absolutely, it does. Absolutely. Uh, that that, that there, there is a serious engagement with complex ideas. Yeah. And you, you, you've already alluded to, you know, the, the ways in which he, he deals with questions of religious faith. Yeah. And, you know, and we get that very, very strongly in Stepping Stones where he's, you know, we've talked to Dennis O'Driscoll and really talking about that sort of moment you know, where he says, it's, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a great drama. It sort of happened yeah. off stage. Yeah. But he realized that the, 
if you how do you like, like to say the content had fallen out of the faith yeah but the the the, the structures the, the words the language was still there yeah this poem has something in it as well of that i think you know when you get to that final line mm. where he conjuring up the canal the coof along the bank the grassy zest of verges the path not narrow but still straight mm. all of it purely descriptive for a while and then yeah. where soul could mind itself or stray beyond yeah yeah I mean, what, I mean, what's going on that line? It seems to me there's a lot going on that line. Absolutely. I also think it's a kind of classic Heaney move that he, mm. that he will draw you in uh, um, with, the, um, with the actuality, with the description, as you say, with everything he describes we can see brilliantly in this, in this picture. Um, and, and then at, at the end, he, he lets us know what all this is invested with. Um, where soul um, you know, could mind itself. Soul is such an interesting word here because obviously it's, it's religious, it's kind of freighted with a sense of the spiritual. Um, and, and also soul, apart from when he uses the word I, the first person um, uh, pronoun in this poem, soul is the, is, is the only word that really relates to a person. You know, we have water, we have world, and then soul as a kind of, as the elemental, um, fundamental essence of self. Um, but again, that sense of that sense of division or that sense of a choice, soul could mind itself or, or you know, or, or go elsewhere, be, be led astray, um, be, 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 I suppose, transported. Um, and that I think is interesting too. I think there's something, um, I think there's something in these, in these um, it's part of the philosophical turn, the metaphysical kind of um, concerns, I think a kind of a, a sense of, again perhaps a sense of how origins relate to one's own destiny and the kind of stability of this of this world that he sees and conjures um in the painting um being in essence the creative springboard the, the thing that makes everything else possible in, in his life perhaps if we were to read it back into his own um into his own kind of career in that way um but yeah and and again i mean that phrase mind itself it's almost as if the, the two persons if you like are speaking there Absolutely. but on one hand it's a completely colloquial term you know, mind yourself don't fall exactly. in the canal exactly um, yeah yeah <laughs> but it's also it could be as if the mind know itself is Absolutely. almost implicit in that yeah. so that soul could mind itself as yeah. in the sense the mind can know the soul Absolutely. and then suddenly we're into you know suddenly into very deep philosophical waters yeah um, we've fallen into the philosophical That's canal, right. if you like. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah. and, 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 and those few words manage to do those two things just yeah. so effortlessly, don't they? They do, they do. And it is a kind of characteristic, um, wouldn't want to say sleight of hand, because that, but, it, but, it, but it is. And he certainly does that. Um, throughout his collection, Seeing Things, I think that's where, which was published in 1991, I think that's where we begin to... I think that's where we begin to see this um, kind of strain in Heaney's work really, really coming through because, it, and it's no coincidence, I don't think that that is a poem, but that's a collection, I should say, which is, you know, from its very title, concerned with this idea of vision, not simply vision mm -hmm. in the physical sense, but vision in the kind of metaphysical, intangible, um, uh, hard to grasp, and yet absolutely kind of knowable and, and clearly discerned um, senses um, so that somehow perception is broadened and it, and it encompasses not just the perception of the real world of the physical material world which he gave us from the very very beginning in his poetry but it starts to take on other things about like, the nature of being alive the nature of contemplating um, uh, life and, and mortality and, uh, and our relations to, to places and people and things.
which is why I think you know working with the poems with the paintings works so well together. Yeah, because because paintings I think perhaps force upon us that that kind of contemplation contemplation of perception. Yeah, that the work is about from really as you say from seeing things in 1991 onwards. Yeah, 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 and I think it's interesting to to kind of pause and and kind of and think about what Heaney said about the relationship between paintings and photography because again around about the time that seeing things was published um he reflected on um on photography and he and this was at the time when he was working on a, on a project with a photographer and where his translation of Sweeney Astray was going to be published alongside photographs um, by Rachel Giesen, a Canadian photographer right. um and he says actually there that he always kind of been uncomfortable sense the misalliance between the photograph and the printed word because he just didn't see that that, that that the printed word could kind of do what the photograph does it could could kind of capture things um in, in quite the same way so photography he kind of puts in that category but when he engages with painters and with paintings which he does you know in, in very important ways at different stages in his career i think what we're seeing is is um a more personal identification with with the artist and as a sense of the artist's role and predicament he writes very interestingly for example about the painter Cezanne and uh, and his sense of Cezanne's uh, pride and Cezanne's kind of you know not being concerned with with what the world thinks but just kind of going on and, do, and doing what he does um so there's a sense in which that's a kind of a persuasive model for Heaney as he's as he's thinking about how the artist justifies the art I guess Mm, yeah, I think that, that, that makes a good link for us, perhaps, to, to go from a painting to a photograph. Yeah. Um, and um, the, the next photograph we have is, this is a photograph by Bobby Hanvey um, of Heaney looking out, well, towards uh, Sandy Mount Strand, which would, would be there if the tide wasn't in. Um, so, um, and, and, and I think maybe, maybe we'll just have a little conversation about this before we bring Adrian back in. Um, Let's talk about perhaps about these poems about about seeing things. I wonder, can we maybe push this out a bit? This idea of seeing things and seeing Heaney. Um, it's you know seven years uh, on on the thirtieth since he passed away. Um, are we starting to see Heaney differently? I, I think we are. I mean, I think I think. Um inevitably one of the things that has happened is that we are appreciating a, a complete body of work um, we're looking at a career that spanned 50 years that was remarkably um, diverse uh, we're looking at a career that was international in profile that um, that uh, touched the lives of, of many many people um, and um, and we're looking at a writer and an artist who who had a, a conscience which was truly international and and a kind of and a compassion and a bravery um, in his writing, um, which um, which endures, and which we now have a, a different point of vantage on, I guess, um, in a kind of in the sense of uh, research. Um, many more sources are available to us. Heaney very generously donated his papers to the National Library of Ireland in 2011, so we have access to um, the process, if you like. We have access to um, to the work um, that, uh, that, mm. that 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 gave rise to to um, you know the career. Um, but I think we also have, have, have a greater sense, a fuller sense of, um, of how demanding um, and, um, and kind of, uh, you know, transcontinental um, his, his, his life and his career was, because he was, he was a, this is something I'm very interested in, actually, the idea of, a, you know, a contemporary writer, a contemporary artist, and how we relate to them in our own time. And I think Heaney, for so many of us, um, 
was such a presence, such a stable presence on the cultural landscape. Um, he was there, he was trusted, he was an authority, but he was also uh, a kind of um, a relatable figure. Um, uh, and, and now we're, we're starting to understand all the different aspects of his life, as well as the poetry that, that kind of informed that authority and that compassion um, and the different kinds of work that he did alongside his poetry, uh, that in a sense we, we perhaps took for granted the work he did in broadcasting, for example, in, in Ireland and, and in Britain, um, his work in education, his work in universities. Um, and it, it's, it, 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 you know, taken together, it's an extraordinary, um, it's an extraordinary legacy um, uh, that, uh, that we are, I think, beginning to grasp. Um, and appreciate fully. Mm. I mean, it's it's interesting. We started off with the reading from that from that lecture among school children, and yeah. and very much is a sense that, you know, for much of his life, um, Heaney was you know that figure in Yeats's poem among school children, the smiling public man, and and he genuinely did smile. I mean, he did. in comparison to Yeats, who <laughs> doesn't seem to smile that often. Um, I think I think one of the things that that you know I find remarkable about your book, and I, and I think you're right that we are entering into a new phase of understanding his work, is that the materials we have now, in as you say, in the National Library, you know, you, you're working not just with manuscripts of the poems, but manuscripts from of the lectures, mm -hmm. that you see the amount of work, the amount of shaping that went into ideas, um, in, into shaping that, if you like, that smiling public man, that persona. Yeah. Um, which in some ways was 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 a kind of was a kind of artwork in its own right. Yeah. I mean, which you know was not to say that he wasn't you know sincere or wasn't wasn't genuine, yeah. but was also there was a lot of thought went into the way in which he spoke in public, the way in which he presented himself in public. Um, you make great use of the documentaries, and you know a few minutes ago you mentioned the RT documentary into the marvelous, which yeah. is literally marvelous. It's a wonderful, wonderful doc documentary. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, and of course, I mean, there's, there's Roy Foster's book on Heaney, I think is, it was published just last week on the 25th. Yeah. So yeah. it seems like there's another, uh, another phase that we're coming into now of understanding the work with, 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 with greater complexity, I think, than yeah. perhaps in the past. Yeah. Um, before we get to the very, the very, very last poem this evening, um, the last poem we're going to look at is, is one called Field of Vision. But it, it comes, brings us back to this idea of, 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 of looking, doesn't it? Um, oh. and, and, and I suppose how throughout his, his career as a poet, for Heaney looking always involved a kind of binocular vision, the kind of the two people looking, yeah. the two people seeing. Yeah. Um, yeah. By the end of his career, um, where do you think he had come to on that question of seeing the world? There's that for a broad question. Um, I, I think it's a great. I think it's it's, it's a great and important question, which um, I, I'm not sure I can answer completely fully, but mm. I, I can offer my I can offer my my thoughts on it. I think to look at this photograph, which is to me very interesting because it's it's a picture that kind of comes from just the immediately post Nobel Prize uh, moment. So it was taken mm. in 1996. It's a, it's a photograph that's taken in Dublin. I love the fact that you can see that Heaney has a, a newspaper under his arm. Um, so there's, there's that sense of Heaney in the world in the current moment. But I think it's also true that the Nobel Prize is a, is a kind of, is a, is a threshold um, that really, um, obviously already at that stage, he has a, a highly, um, a kind of a, a very strong international reputation and is highly regarded um, already. But the Nobel Prize really kind of, I think, propels him into, into another kind of phase. Um, 
I think his way of seeing his way of seeing the world is articulated so brilliantly in crediting poetry um, his his Nobel um, mm. Prize speech and there he talks um, so brilliantly and so characteristically about um, about all the things we've been talking about really um, about you know the artist's place the artist's role to witness to respond to represent he does something that he does elsewhere for example in his um introduction to his translation of beowulf which is also a late 1990s work published in 1999 and that's um he starts to think about us collectively as as late 20th century people as people who witness the world and see the world mostly through mediated images and he'd always been concerned about that he was concerned about that in the early days of the troubles when he talked about television as kind of erecting a pain of self selfishness between the viewer and and the events they see and he talks about the same things in crediting poetry this sense that we might kind of mm -hmm. end up with compassion fatigue certain shocking images are are too familiar to us almost we're too familiar with images of concentration camps for example and there's a risk in that he thinks even though there's something so direct and powerful about what the image conveys but all this is important because what he comes to at the end of crediting poetry is um the most extraordinary uh, defense of the poem and of the way of seeing that the lyric poem offers us and that's a kind of seeing through language um poetry matters and poetry can offer us a, a way of seeing the world because of because of what it does with language what it allows with language how the poet can arrange words in a line to sound beautiful how they can play with form to to give us a, a kind of a, an artifact if you like in in, in words and poetry so i think I think that's it. I mean, it should be said, though, that he, he doesn't ever um, come to any conclusion, I don't think, without testing himself um, extremely. And he does that in crediting poetry. He, he comes to credit poetry brilliantly, but he only does that after he's kind of put poetry on the rack a bit and said, well, you know, is this, can, can, can this be justified? And I think that process of questioning is also central to Tahini's way of seeing the world. Um, shortly, after he, shortly after he died in 2013, Bernard O'Donoghue, his, his great friend and poet and, and critic, um, said that he felt that Heaney had asked all the great questions better than anybody else. And in a sense, that was what he would most miss about him and what he felt we would all miss most about him. And I think, I think that's absolutely true. I think Heaney's way of seeing the world is in a way being brave enough to confront the things which are difficult to understand, uh, difficult to process and take on, uh, whether that's personal grief or whether that's the collective experience of of a conflict which kind of really tests our faith in in humanity and 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 so forth so yeah, yeah i think that's a great answer yeah he asked all he asked all the hard questions um i think with that we might we might go to that that, that final poem field division um and i think which adrian's going to read for us and, and in many ways that really it picks up a lot of the things you've just been talking about about his relationship with media with television but also about seeing and i, I when i hear this poem i also think about how we come different day as well adrian perhaps could you read field division of course <clears throat> field division adrian yeah yeah can you hear me Yep, yep, go far away. Okay. Field of vision. I remember this woman who sat for years in a wheelchair, looking straight ahead out the window at sycamore trees, unleafing and leafing at the far end of the lane. 
straight out, past the TV in the corner, the stunted, agitated hawthorn bush, the same small calves with their backs to wind and rain, the same acre of ragwort, the same mountain. She was steadfast as the big window itself. Her brow was clear as the chrome bits of the chair. She never lamented once, and she never carried a spare ounce of emotional weight. Face to face with her was an education of the sort you got across a well-braced gate. One of those lean, clean, iron roadside ones between two whitewashed pillars where you could see deeper into the country than you expected and discovered that the field behind the hedge grew more distinctly strange as you kept standing, focused, and more drawn in by what barred the way. Thanks, Thanks very much, Adrian. That's, that was great. <laughs> that, 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 that brings us more or less to the, to the end of the evening. Um, and I, I'd just like to, to repeat the thanks that, that, that Eve gave at the beginning to Adrian for reading for us this evening. The readings were fabulous. They really, they really bring the work alive. Uh, and again, congratulations to Rosie. Um, I'm just going to give a shameless plug to the book. Go out, buy it. Makes a great gift for friends, for people you don't even know. Um, buy a copy. It really does illuminate Heaty's work. Um, and, and, and with that, I'm going to hand back over to, to Eve in well, not in the hub, but virtually in the hub, to, to round up the evening, Eve. Thank you, Chris. And what a joy to, to listen to you and Rosie talk about these poems and these images, not only with your expertise, but with such warmth and openness to each other's views. Uh, it's been a real treat. Um, and Adrian, an absolute pleasure to hear you read Heaney's lines uh, with such grace and, and humour, and again with warmth. Uh, many thanks for that. Um, I think he would have been delighted that you are broadcasting his words from a kitchen. Uh, it suits very well. Before I let you go, Adrian, I know that the uh, Line of Duty fans uh, amongst us, myself included, wouldn't forgive me if I didn't say how much we're eagerly awaiting the next series. Um, but I know that you're also working on some literary events, including something quite exciting on Samuel Beckett with uh, former Trinity School of English scholar James Little, uh, among other things. Is there anything you can tell us about uh, what we have to look forward to, what we might see you in? Yes, well, myself and Nick Roth have formed a company called Unreal Cities, and we're curating a Beckett festival with uh, Liverpool University and uh, Notre Dame. Uh, that's happening in July next year. Some really interesting things happening there. We have uh, our productions of Ohio Impromptu and Catastrophe, new, uh, new setting of De Profundis with Schubert and Beethoven that Nick's working on, uh, Una Doherty dancing a film piece. And as you said, it's James Little, and uh, the title of the, 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 uh, the event is called Confinement, off the back of James's new book, uh, Confinement and Beckett. And then we're also, our, our version of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, we're hoping to tour. It's been very successful. I broke it into four voices and we used the oldest, or the earliest rather, uh, colour footage of London from the 1920s and uh, new music composed once again by Nick 
and we're also hoping to we were hoping to do event an event um uh in uh, the uh irish cultural center in paris uh, with seamus's work and uh and using we've done it before in the uh in the bank of ireland we were hoping to do that at some point this year so you know all good all good things all good things Fantastic. Well, we, we're going to keep an eye on uh, on everything you're involved in and, and make sure we let people know about it because uh, I know they'll, they'll be fantastic to watch. Uh, so thank you again, Adrian, on behalf of The Hub uh, and everyone who's listening for your generosity and your commitment. Uh, thank you also and congratulations again to Rosie Lavin uh, and to Chris Morash from Trinity School of English. It's been such a privilege to listen to you both. Um, and uh, I would also like to acknowledge, of course, our events team at the Trinity Long Room Hub, particularly um, Francesca O'Rafferty and Aoife King. Uh, most of all, I'd like to close by thanking everybody who has joined us on Zoom, on the Facebook stream, or through Irish Central. Uh, I think it has been genuinely heartwarming that so many people have come together for the last hour to think about poetry, to think about these images. And I know from our media feed that we've had uh, absolutely wonderful responses coming in uh, from Europe, from you know, United States, from Canada, from Australia. Um, it's, it's a tremendous uh, uh, occasion um, that uh, you've all come together to think about Heaney. The recording of this event is going to be available on the Trinity Long Room Hub Facebook site. Uh, so you can watch it again if you would like, or you want to send it on to friends and again do go to the website the main hub website for those details and there is more to come uh, please keep an eye on the long room hubs website for forthcoming events we're going to have a special feature on culture and constellation uh, this will be for dublin's culture night on september the 18th and we'll also be having a return to our signature behind the headlines series uh, which many of you know uh, that will be at the end of the month. Please do get in touch if you'd like to know more about the Trinity Long Room Hub, if you'd be interested in getting involved with our work or supporting our researchers. And with that, I want to thank you all again for joining us for Fields of Vision, Seamus Heaney and Society. I bid you all good health and goodbye. is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminist revolution.